0: Hello, and welcome to the March 2015 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, first up, due to recording last month's podcast a little late, we already covered part of the Alabama story detailed in this month's issue, but late-breaking developments still give us plenty to talk about. Where do we stand there nationally on marriage equality art?
1: Okay, uh, first nationally. Uh, let's let's take that up. Uh, at this point, we're down to just a handful of states where we don't have a federal district court decision. I think it may be down to two or three. Uh, there, There are some district courts that have... Summary judgment uh, motions pending but have indicated they're not going to rule until after the Supreme Court announces its decision in uh, Obergefell, which is probably the name that's going to be on the marriage equality case when it's decided in June. We do have late breaking news as to that, which post-dates are going to press on this issue. The Supreme Court has announced that it will hear arguments in all of the marriage equality appeals from the Sixth Circuit on Tuesday, April 28th and that it will be posting transcript and audio recording of the argument that afternoon. So uh, people who are eager to hear exactly what happens will be able to do so right on the court's website. Uh, The opinion, of course, can be announced any time after it's been argued, but the Supreme Court has usually held these really exciting and controversial cases to the very end of its term, and its last date for announcing arguments, I think, is June 29th. Uh, So uh, we may be uh, up to the last minute before we know exactly what the court has decided. But uh, we did get this month a very strong indication of what the court's going to decide as part of the Alabama case. Uh, Where we left off last month uh, was that uh, the uh, federal district court had ordered that Alabama probate judges issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, and that same-sex marriages contracted out of state be recognized in Alabama. The uh, 11th Circuit denied the state's motion for a stay. Uh, On February 8th, the day before Judge Grenade's stay was going to expire of its own accord, Chief Justice Roy Moore of the Alabama Supreme Court had issued an order to all the probate judges not to issue marriage licenses. He said that a a ruling by a federal district judge was not binding on the Alabama courts. And he's correct as to that. It isn't binding on the Alabama courts. Uh, Constitutional issues can proceed in parallel through the state and federal court systems. The Constitution gives state courts concurrent jurisdiction uh, to decide federal constitutional issues that may arise in their cases. But decisions by the federal court are, of course, not appealed within the state appellate system and decisions by the state trial courts aren't appealed in the federal appellate system. So until they get to the Supreme Court of the United States, decisions that come up through the appellate uh, system on the federal side are not literally binding on the state courts. So Judge Moore, as a matter of strict precedent, was correct. Uh, But as Judge Grenade subsequently pointed out, uh, once she had ruled that uh, the ban on same-sex marriage was unconstitutional and the Supreme Court had refused to stay her ruling, that was a ruling. It was certainly binding on uh, the Mobile County Probate Court and uh, Judge Don Davis, uh, who was ordered to issue a marriage license to the plaintiffs in the uh, Strausser case and to proceed with the adoption proceeding in the Cersei case. But uh, what he's done in the Cersei case is kind of odd. Uh, as, as part of the follow-up to what's happening. In the Cersei case, he uh, has issued a, an interlocutory temporary parental rights order for Cersei, but has not issued a final order on her adoption petition. And all indications are he won't issue a final order till after the Supreme Court rules in June. But getting back to the issue of getting marriage licenses, uh, on February 9th, the Supreme Court denied the stay, which, mean, uh, which means that Judge uh, Grenade's order went into effect and same-sex couples started showing up at probate judge uh, chambers around the state looking for marriage licenses. Some judges felt that they were obligated by Chief Justice Moore's order not to issue them. Some felt that they were obligated by uh, Judge Grenade's order to issue them. Some expressed confusion. Some just didn't open the window to the marriage license uh, uh, application process and, and just weren't issuing licenses to anybody, and some insisted on just issuing it to uh, different sex couples, and and that's why we ended up having further litigation to get a clarifying uh, opinion from Judge Granad, uh, which really echoed and quoted at length from the similar opinion issued in Florida by uh, District Judge Hinkle when there was some question whether his ruling was uh, applicable to all of the other... Uh, county clerks other than the one who was the defendant in the case he was ruling on and he said well you know once my ruling goes into effect and the supreme court of the united states has refused to stay it any judge or clerk who refuses to issue a marriage license could be sued and they would have the expenses of defending and they would probably lose I mean, look at the trend of decisions look at four circuit courts and dozens of federal district courts Uh, they would probably lose, and they would be spending a lot of time and money on litigating, and in the end, they'd have to issue the marriage licenses. Uh, So, you know, although my opinion technically doesn't bind them, uh, as a matter of practicality, it probably does, and Judge Grenade pretty much said the same thing. Uh, And and so ultimately, by the end of February, uh, roughly 50 out of the 67 or 68 probate judges were issuing marriage licenses. But That was hardly the end of the story uh, because there were attempts to get the Alabama Supreme Court involved. Uh, The first attempt was by uh, Probate Judge Don Davis of Mobile County. He asked the court for an advisory opinion as to whether he had to comply with Chief Justice Moore's order or with Judge Gronaut's order, and they refused to issue it. They said uh, that under uh, the Alabama Constitution, only the governor or the legislature can ask for an advisory opinion from the Supreme Court. Thus rebuffed the opponents of marriage equality resorted to an alternative strategy so two organizations in the state petitioned the court uh, to order the probate judges not to issue marriage licenses Uh, this was not the attorney general this was not the state but they claimed to be representing the interest of the state Uh, and uh, ultimately one of the probate judges who was named as a respondent changed sides and said no make me a co-petitioner and uh, that persuaded at least one judge on the uh, Alabama Supreme Court that they were standing there. Uh, but the other judges thought that these organizations had representatives standing uh, to represent the interests of the voters who, after all, had passed the Sanctity of Marriage Amendment many years ago. Uh, so, and this is getting beyond what we're reporting in the March issue of Law Notes, because this happened on March 3, the Alabama Supreme Court, by a vote of 7 to 1 with Chief Justice Moore abstaining,
0: Thank God he recused.
1: Well, he really had to because he's <laughs> – having issued his order, he's become a party in this case. Yes. So he really can't sit as a judge right, in a right, case right. where he is, in effect, a de facto party. Uh, but as as I, I say in the article I'm working on for the April issue of, of Law Notes, his fingerprints are all over this decision. Uh, and uh, what the court basically did is they said, well, the, this party these parties do have standing. We do have jurisdiction. And we totally disagree with Judge Granat. And they issued a, a lengthy opinion which relies primarily on the Sixth Circuit and the dissenting judges and the other courts of appeals uh, and pre Windsor authority. And also, looking at US v. Windsor, the DOMA case, they say, and the Supreme Court acknowledged that it's the role of the states to define marriage. So uh, they're they're so picking married. up the bits of Windsor that help them.
0: The very interesting uh, notion of standing is presented in this. Uh,
1: well, they matter. How these
0: organizations are harmed is sort of spurious. Well, they're,
1: they're saying it's not a case of harm. It's a case of them representing the interest of the state, which is harmed if it's ordered to issue marriage. It's, it's a bit tortured in its reasoning, and I'm sure it will be fodder for uh, civil procedure classes and uh, advanced mm-hmm. litigation classes to come. But at any rate, so the situation is, in Alabama, the day after the court issued that decision, which was the evening, actually, of March 3, none of the probate judges are issuing marriage licenses. They've all stopped. Because uh, they say they're under a direct order now of the Alabama Supreme Court. The court did say that any judge who wanted to dispute it could uh, had five days to dispute it <laughs> and to explain why they should be allowed to issue marriage licenses. And they specifically asked Judge Davis... To respond uh, promptly as to whether he felt that he was bound under Judge Grenade's order to issue marriage licenses to anyone other than the plaintiffs in the case.
0: And we should also know they didn't even ask our side for briefing no. on the core issue.
1: This this was a case that was <laughs> between uh, parties who agreed, had no yeah. had no actual interest,
0: right? And agreed that we, interest. you know, they didn't ask anyone on our side to present right. our side of the case,
1: right? In other words, they decided the substantive issue without any adversity. (laughs) And so that clearly violates rules of standing in jurisdiction. And and this is clearly an advisory opinion, uh, which they say that they can't give unless asked by the governor or the legislature. I'm sure that could be cured by the legislature passing a resolution, uh, ex (laughs) post facto. Yeah, yeah. But this is strange. But, you know, there were some other marriage developments that we should talk about. Uh, There was a little flurry of uh, activity in Texas. Uh, Now, listeners may recall that last year a federal district court in San Antonio issued a ruling finding the Texas ban on same-sex marriage unconstitutional. That was appealed to the Fifth Circuit by the state. The Fifth Circuit heard arguments on January 9th. They have not issued an opinion yet. Uh, But meanwhile, the, the district judge had stayed his own decision. And attempts are being made to try to get the Fifth Circuit to lift the stay. Based on the fact that the Supreme Court refused to stay Alabama and Florida, but so far they've been unsuccessful. Uh, but a probate court in Austin, Travis County, uh, had a case in which someone had died. They had they left the same sex partner. A woman had died and left the same sex partner. Uh, she was not married to them or to her out of state. Uh, they hadn't contracted a civil union or a domestic partnership somewhere else, but they'd lived together for a long, long, long time as a couple. And the surviving partner wanted to claim that they had a common-law marriage and, therefore, uh, that she had rights uh, as an intestate uh, uh, surviving spouse. And the, uh, uh, the, the case involves a dispute over uh, whether she has the rights of a surviving spouse. Uh, and uh, the surviving heirs at law were uh, contesting that and the probate judge decided in a somewhat strange ruling that doesn't have a lot of explanation that uh, to the extent that Texas recognizes common law marriages uh, they would have to recognize common law marriages for same-sex couples because in the opinion of this probate judge it would violate the 14th Amendment not to do so (laughs) and... uh, and so immediately, another lesbian couple in Austin who were eager to get married uh, quickly went to a regular trial judge and asked for an order uh, on the on the county clerk to allow them to uh, have a marriage license and get married and The obliging judge issued the order, and so they got married and so all of a sudden, there was this uproar in the state the uh, recently elected attorney general Ken Paxton who is a sworn opponent of same-sex marriage, just like all other statewide elected officials in Texas, (laughs) uh, quickly ran to the state Supreme Court and asked the state Supreme Court for an order that no county clerks in Texas issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, which the court was eager to oblige, which is sort of odd because Mr. Paxton was not a party to any – and the state was not a party to either of these uh, proceedings. So how can the state, you know, on its own motion, intervene – and ask the Supreme Court to step in. We're we're seeing all kinds of irregular procedural stuff going on around this issue, and there is some speculation that if we win in the Supreme Court, uh, that uh, we will see some of these shenanigans around the country in those states where there are recalcitrants. As to what will happen when the case is argued, uh, as I alluded to earlier, uh, the Supreme Court's denial of the stay in the Alabama case was accompanied with a very broad hint in the form of Justice Clarence Thomas's dissent, which was joined by Justice Scalia. And Thomas really uh, scolded the court, I think you could say, uh, for refusing to stay the decision. He said, look, one of the main grounds for staying a district court decision is that we are likely to grant review to a case on the merits. Uh, And we have now. We've granted review to the Sixth Circuit case. We're going to be deciding the question presented by the Alabama case on the merits this term. Uh, and so he said, therefore, it was inappropriate of the court to refuse to stay. Now that we have indicated that this is a an issue on which we're going to hear arguments on the merits. And he said, and people may interpret this as the court sort of signaling what it's going to do. By refusing to stay, the court may be interpreted as signaling that it's going to vote to reverse the Sixth Circuit and to find that same-sex couples have a constitutional right to marry. Uh, and a lot of people have pointed to that. In fact, another development that postdates the newsletter, but I'll just refer to it briefly, and depending how much news we have in April, we may end up discussing this in more detail, but the uh, Federal District Court in Nebraska issued a marriage equality ruling uh, right at the beginning of March, on, on I think it was Monday, March 2nd, and specifically referred to Justice Thomas's comment in his dissent from the denial of the stay uh, to indicate that this is the way the wind is blowing. And and that's why the federal district judge in Nebraska refused to stay his decision pending appeal. He just gave a short stay to give the state a chance to ask the Eighth Circuit for a stay or the Supreme Court. And no news on that yet. Uh, He gave them two weeks, I think. So... uh, That's where we are on on those things. Uh, As to the Supreme Court case, the deadline for petitioners' briefs was February 27th. All the petitioners filed their briefs on time, as one would expect. Uh, The arguments they're presenting, they cover the landscape. Uh, They all argue that if the court uses a rational basis test, the petitioners win because there's no rational basis for denying marriage to same-sex couples. But they all make a pitch in one way or another for heightened scrutiny, either on the fundamental right to marry theory or the sex discrimination theory or the sexual orientation discrimination theory, claiming that there are suspect classifications there. It it sort of covers the waterfront. They're very well done, very professionally done. Uh, There are local counsel. There are LGBT rights uh, organization attorneys. There are uh, pro bono attorneys from big law firms. uh, The collection of legal talent that's being devoted to this is extraordinary and the fact that the uh, the petitions were granted on cases from four different states guarantees that there's going to be enormous legal teams here but the supreme court has indicated they only want to hear from two attorneys for the petitioners Uh, basically all of these attorneys are going to have to decide who's going to present the argument on the right to marry and who's going to present the argument on recognition I don't think the court is denying any state attorney general the right to defend their marriage law. So there may be four uh, attorneys on the other side. But uh, we'll see how how that unfolds.
0: Yeah. And I think all the amicus briefs are due tomorrow because there's been a lot of amicus briefs uh, right. about which Republicans are setting out of the Republican brief, which is sort of yeah. interesting. We got David Koch, apparently.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, the, the Koch brothers are supposedly libertarian. On this issue,
0: and uh, General Stanley McChrystal, I also saw so some uh, yeah. it, it, interesting it Republicans on that brief.
1: Be a very, very interesting uh, to just chart who is signed on. It almost doesn't matter what the briefs say, yeah, uh, because they're all being filed in supported petitioners. Now, respondents are due uh, March 27th, and then reply briefs are due a few weeks after that, and then the argument April 28th. Uh, There's another aspect of the same-sex marriage issue which generated some interesting decisions uh, during the past month in Mississippi and Ohio, uh, the question of divorce. Uh, If a state does not recognize same-sex marriages, can state residents who are married in other jurisdictions get divorced there? And uh, in Mississippi, we had a case where the trial judge said, uh, well, you know, I don't have jurisdiction because uh, we don't recognize this marriage. And since uh, this out-of-state marriage is not recognized in Mississippi, there's no marriage for me to dissolve. And that went to the Mis- Mississippi Supreme Court, which issued a surprising decision. It said the court does have jurisdiction. that The court has general jurisdiction of any petition seeking a marriage, uh, potentially. But uh, a- after hearing oral argument, the court said, we would like additional briefing from the parties on the question whether it's necessary under Mississippi law to recognize a marriage in order to grant a divorce. And so they, and they asked the parties uh, to brief this issue. Uh, and uh, one of the dissenting judges said, why do we need more briefing? We know under Mississippi law that you can't divorce a party if their marriage isn't recognized. But another judge said, not only do we not need briefing, But the Mississippi ban on same-sex marriage is unconstitutional. At least one judge on the Mississippi Supreme Court was willing to write a rather lengthy opinion explaining why it was unconstitutional. So there is some dissension on the Mississippi Supreme Court. uh, But it seems clear the accusation by the dissenters is probably accurate. The Mississippi Supreme Court decided, all right, we've heard all arguments. We've seen what's going on. The Supreme Court has granted review of the Sixth Circuit decision. Therefore, there will be a federal constitutional ruling on same-sex marriage by the end of June. Why do we have to decide this case? Let's put it off. And I think that's what they're doing. They're putting it off. Now, there was an Ohio case that we also wrote about uh, involving a same-sex couple who reside in Ohio, but they own a vacation home in Massachusetts. And while in Massachusetts on vacation one summer in 2006, they got married in Massachusetts. And, of course, they spend some time in Massachusetts each year, and they were spending, uh, their primary residence was in Ohio. Uh, Several years later, they came to a parting of the ways. They're no longer living together, and one of them files a divorce petition. And the other responds by saying, well, we're not really married, because, you see, back in 2006, Massachusetts still had that old law, century-old law in effect, saying that you couldn't get married in Massachusetts if it wasn't your home state, and your home state wouldn't recognize the marriage. That was a marriage evasion statute. The uh, commissioners on uniform laws had circulated it back in those days when uh, mixed-race couples were going out of state uh, to get married in states that allowed mixed-race marriages. and There was a lot of consternation about evading uh, prohibitions on mixed-race marriages. Uh, and that wasn't actually repealed in Massachusetts till a few years later after this marriage was contracted.
0: I think the Massachusetts uh, SJC say only Rhode Island and New Mexico then qualified as the- Yeah, because they didn't
1: have an explicit ban in their state laws or constitutions, even though they weren't necessarily recognizing it. Yeah. I mean, they had attorney general opinions (laughs) in those days. So so anyway, in this Ohio case, uh, the court had to decide, uh, is there a marriage? If there's no marriage, then we don't grant a divorce. Now, do we say there's no marriage because Ohio doesn't recognize out-of-state marriages? We have some federal district court decisions saying we have to, but they were reversed by the Sixth Circuit in the DeBoer <laughs> case. But the Supreme Court has granted review of the Debor case. What do we do? Yeah. Well, an alternative is just to say this marriage wasn't valid in the first place because uh, under Massachusetts law, they shouldn't have been able to get a marriage license. They must have lied on their application by saying they were Massachusetts residents. Well, they actually weren't. At any rate... The, uh, the Court of Appeals in Ohio upheld the trial court's decision that there was no jurisdiction to grant the divorce here. Uh, so this is another issue. It doesn't get talked about a lot in the context of all this marriage equality litigation, but one of the important issues in marriage equality litigation uh, is the right to get a divorce if you've been married in a jurisdiction that allows same-sex marriage, but you live in a jurisdiction that doesn't. And so this, is, uh, this will be a side effect of any Supreme Court decision if we have marriage equality nationwide then we have the right of same sex couples who are married to get divorced nationwide right. and that problem pretty much solves itself so that's where we are in marriage
0: <laughs> all right lot to process there we will take a short break and when we return we'll change gears and discuss two important decisions from february related to hiv criminalization <laughs> We are back discussing two decisions from the past month setting important precedents in the area of HIV criminalization. Uh, can you tell us about People versus Williams first, Art?
1: All right, this was a decision by the New York Court of Appeals, which is New York's highest court. It was decided uh, on February 19th, but the, uh, the court's hearing in the case took place when the bench was down to only five members. There were two vacancies that uh, nominations were pending. They hadn't been confirmed by the state Senate. So this was actually a four-to-one decision. It involved uh, a man, Terrence Williams, who uh, was HIV positive. He knew he was HIV positive. He'd been uh, diagnosed. He became friends with the person who's identified uh, in the court decision as the victim, whose anonymity is being preserved. Uh, They developed a relationship. He didn't tell the victim, that he was HIV positive. Uh, Their relationship became a sexual relationship. At first, they used condoms. But at some point, uh, he decided he didn't want to use condoms anymore. And he sort of waved off his partner, who actually reached for a condom. They were about to have sex. And he he just waved him away. He said, no, we don't need that. He says, are you sure it's safe? Oh, yeah, it's safe. Don't worry. And they had sex uh, a few times. Uh, And then uh, he became concerned that uh, he really should tell his partner that he was HIV positive since they'd had anal sex. But he he couldn't bring himself to. So what he did was he said, I've been contacted by a former sexual contact from before I knew you who told me he's been diagnosed HIV positive. You know, it'd be a good idea for you to get tested. And the partner actually, the victim didn't get tested at that point, but broke off the relationship. Uh, and then uh, later the victim developed symptoms. This is months later that prompted him to go and get tested and he tested HIV positive. So this is a case of HIV transmission through unprotected sex where the infected party did not disclose and in fact refused to use a condom and, uh, affirmatively asserted that it was safe. So this is a pretty bad case. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people would say Mr. Williams is not a, not a good actor here. Uh, so, uh, and then this is sort of the capper on it. Uh, Williams subsequently contacted the victim through social media and said, oh, by the way, I'm HIV positive and I'm so sorry. And I, I exposed you to risk and blah, blah, blah. And I want to apologize and all this kind of stuff. So he basically confessed, you know, he said, I made a big mistake. I shouldn't have, uh, have told you it was safe, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, uh, the victim went to the DA, uh, this is in Onondaga County, Syracuse. Went to the DA, and the DA brought it to the grand jury. And the grand jury voted to charge him with uh, a felony uh, reckless endangerment charge and with a uh, fel- with a misdemeanor assault charge. Uh, and the uh, felony reckless endangerment charge requires a, uh, a finding... Uh, that uh, basically uh, depraved indifference to human life and subjecting someone to serious injury or death and all this kind of stuff. Uh, And Williams filed a motion with the trial judge to reduce the charge. He claimed that uh, the felony reckless endangerment charge did not apply to his case. He had not intended to infect this person, and the odds of transmitting HIV were actually relatively low, and given the current uh, medical treatments for HIV infection uh, to say that this is uh, likely to cause serious injury or death is, uh, is an exaggeration. You know, he's, he's really fighting against the traditional approach to cases like this and saying, well, yeah, I, I think basically admitting he did done something wrong. He wasn't asking them to dismiss the assault charge, for example. Uh, but he says the uh, the reckless endangerment charge should be reduced, and there's a, a lower degree of the crime under which it would just be considered a misdemeanor. And the trial judge agreed and reduced the charge to a misdemeanor. And the uh, the district attorney then uh, brought an interlocutory appeal to the court of appeals, uh, saying, No, this is this is wrong. This is someone who really willfully exposed someone else to HIV. He knew he was infected, he didn't disclose, he refused to use a condom, he assured his party it was safe. That sounds like depraved indifference to human life, to us. Uh, But the Court of Appeals, by a vote of 4 to 1, affirmed the trial court. Uh, They said uh, that there's no need for us to decide the issue of whether uh, contracting HIV today creates a grave risk of death they just focused on the depraved indifference and they said well you know we look at the testimony of this guy and it's clear he wasn't intending to infect and by uh telling the victim to get tested he was showing some concern for his life the majority seemed to think well this isn't a case of depraved indifference to human life uh i i think the decision is sort of Hard to understand without addressing the other issue, the, the fact that HIV infection now is treatable and that the overwhelming majority of people who are infected, if they have access to the appropriate medications and they're compliant, are not likely to die from HIV infection. They're likely to die from something else, maybe even old age, but not HIV infection. So, uh, you know, there, I think there are grounds for debate about this, uh, about whether it was appropriate to uh, reduce it from a felony to a misdemeanor But I know that there are strong arguments that people say uh, that criminalization of HIV itself is, as a matter of public policy, a bad idea, that it drives people underground, it deters people from finding out their HIV status for fear, that then they they would be charged of having depraved indifference to human life. It it puts them in a position uh, where uh, sort of the blunt instrument of the criminal law rather than a more fine-tuned public health policy uh, could be pursued to try to reduce HIV spread. Uh, so it's a difficult case. I've, I've, uh, from my own postings about the case on social media, I've engaged in some debates with people as, you know, is it appropriate to treat this as a felony? Or is this uh, not serious enough to be treated as a felony? A I, I misdemeanor, it's still a criminal conviction. And uh, one assumes that on remand he's going to plead guilty to uh, some charge. Uh, whether there'll be jail time, I don't know, whether there'll be probation. But uh, the district attorney certainly thought it was serious enough to bring it to the Court of Appeals. So I speculate in my article in Law Notes that uh, they're probably going to want some jail time here.
0: I know most, most folks in the HIV advocacy world are strongly against you know, HIV transmission criminalization. So uh, I think they were happy with the decision. It's, yeah. it's certainly up for debate. Um, anyway, uh, United States versus, Gu- versus Gutierrez uh, is the other decision from this All right, one. The
1: other one is is a decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Mm. Uh, this involves uh, not gay sex, but straight sex, but straight sex with a twist. This involves swingers parties that go on at Guantanamo Bay among the bored military personnel there, <laughs> <All> looking <right. laughs> looking for entertainment. But uh, uh, Tech Sergeant David Gutierrez the Air Force, who knew he was HIV positive, he'd been diagnosed. He and his wife participated in swingers' parties. uh, And uh, I guess he was not using condoms. Uh, This is not a case where he infected anybody. But this is a case where it was found out, it was reported, he was prosecuted. uh, And uh, the question in this case was how serious a charge is it? I mean, there's no evidence of transmission. Uh, He was charged uh, for aggravated assault for engaging in unprotected oral and vaginal sex with the women during the swingers' parties. He was also charged with adultery and other things, but the only uh, charge that was the subject of this appeal was the aggravated assault. Uh, Aggravated assault uh, happens when someone commits an assault with a dangerous weapon or other means or force likely to produce death or grievous bodily harm. Uh, He was convicted by the court-martial and on his appeal he's arguing well hold on a minute hold on a minute i didn't infect anybody the odds of me infecting anybody through oral or anal uh, oral or vaginal sex are extremely low and furthermore the consequences of transmission you know as was also argued in the uh, in the williams case uh, are not quite so severe as uh, to meet the uh, standards of likely to produce death or grievous bodily harm HIV infection is treatable. Uh, And the uh, Court of Appeals uh, in this case bought his argument. Uh, They said, certainly, you know, he can be prosecuted for assault in this case. But this aggravated assault, they said, and they had expert witness here on the odds of contracting HIV uh, through oral sex or vaginal intercourse. And they said the odds are very low. In fact, they had a, a te- a, an expert testify that the odds of contracting it through oral sex uh, between a man and a woman are virtually zero. So, you know, and, and, I mean, that's almost zero. Yeah. So the court said, you can't say that almost zero is likely. And, but what was most significant about this case was a complete change in the rationale uh, there was an old case that the court Marshal had relied on, United States against Joseph, a uh, decision by this court from 1993, in which they said uh, the probability of infection need only be more than merely a fanciful, speculative or remote possibility because the question is not the statistical probability of HIV invading the victim's body, but rather the likelihood of the virus causing death or seriously bodily harm if it invades the victim's body that was the rationale of the old cases because the consequences of infection in 1993 before we had antiretroviral medications the consequences of infection were so severe even the tiniest possibility that it might take place would bring it within the aggravated assault statute well now they have repudiated that reasoning Uh, and i think partly that's in light of the fact that hiv infection is a treatable condition now But it's partly because we have much better data about transmission than we did in 1993. And they said, how can you say it's likely when the odds are so stacked against it? They said, even with vaginal intercourse, uh, where the the male is infected, only one in a 500 chance that it's going to transmit. Now, that's more than nothing, but it's really sort of negligible, and it's not likely. You can't say it's likely if it's a 1 in 500 chance. So the court has reversed its reasoning and this means that uh, the potential punishment under military law, because this is the court of appeal for the armed forces, not for like for the Navy or the Marine Corps or something like that. So this covers the entire military. Uh, The rule now is you can't charge people with aggravated assault for unprotected uh, sex by uh, someone who's HIV positive. It's going to be ordinary assault, which means a much lower penalty.
0: All right. Uh, but still a th- penalty. You're right. Yeah. Uh, we'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll update you on an interesting effort we had previously discussed on the Summer 2014 podcast to hold a faith ba- faith-based conversion therapy provider liable under the New Jersey Consumer Fraud Act. <laughs> All right, we're back discussing the case of Ferguson v. Jonah. The case had a couple of breakthroughs at the New Jersey Superior Court last month. Can you tell us about it, Art?
1: Yeah, this is a a pending case in which a bunch of people who signed up for conversion therapy from this organization called Jonah, uh, those are initials standing for Jews Offering New Alternatives for Healing. Uh, Jonah markets its services as being able to change people from uh, being gay to being straight Uh, so these people all signed up they paid significant fees they went through uh, the various procedures Uh,
0: some interesting procedures very
1: very interesting which we've talked about before Uh, like group nakedness (laughs) and uh, beating an effigy of the plaintiff's mother with a tennis racket while screaming as if killing her this supposedly is going to change someone's sexual orientation like snapping rubber bands (laughs) on your wrist every time you see a hot man I mean this is very strange Uh, so at any rate these people claim none of them was cured of their homosexuality. Some of them developed all kinds of psychological problems as a result of this treatment. I would think it would be very disturbing to someone to beat an effigy of their mother while screaming that they want to kill her. <laughs> so, you know, they had to go. You know, it's, it's really not a laughing matter. They ended up going for treatment for psychological or psychiatric consultation to try to cope with this uh uh, the the american psychiatric association uh among other things has said that conversion therapy can cause severe depression not just because people are depressed because they weren't cured you know they went into it trying to shake their homosexuality but they also are are depressed because it it hurts their self-esteem they've been told that they're bad people And and they they internalized the idea that because they couldn't change, they must be really, really bad people. And this is an organization uh, that's religiously motivated, so it's telling them they're not only bad, they're sinful, they're going to hell, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's pretty severe stuff. So the theory of the case is that Jonah is engaged in false advertising. It's representing itself as an organization that can cure homosexuality. And uh, an, an assumption of that is that homosexuality is a disease condition that can be cured and that this organization can do it. And furthermore, that they are purportedly representing that they are successful at doing it. Uh, so uh, the litigation, uh, as we mentioned in our, in our prior report, the court refused to dismiss the case. And uh, now the issue was, first of all, in a ruling issued on February five. Uh, Judge Peter Barrizo of the uh, Superior Court basically rejected most of the expert witnesses that were proffered by the defense uh, because he found that uh, when there, when the qualifications and what they proposed to testify about was reviewed, it was clear that the foundational basis of their expert testimony was the assertion that homosexuality is a disease or disorder of some sort. And the uh, the plaintiffs had moved to bar their expert testimony saying it is an established scientific fact that homosexuality is not a disease or disorder. And therefore, this would basically be so-called junk testimony. It's, it's based on religious beliefs or other beliefs, but is not based on science. And uh, this was a dispute that the court had to resolve. And so the court found that as a matter of law, under New Jersey law, homosexuality is not a disease. And representing that it is... Is fraud some of, by someone who 's purporting to sell uh, a cure uh, so the the court ruled out these experts, and in its subsequent decision on February tenth uh, granting partial summary judgment in the case, it said that if Jonah is representing that homosexuality is a disease for which there is a cure, well that 's consumer fraud All right, so one of these, one of the ultimate legal conclusions in the case has been decided on this motion for summary judgment. Uh second, uh, which, was, which was attacked in uh, this motion for summary judgment by the plaintiffs, uh, was uh, the allegation that Jonah claims that it can change people from straight to gay. And the court said, well, you know, there is, there is some question here about what they're purporting that they can do. Is it that they can actually change someone's sexual orientation? Or is it that their, uh, their procedures will condition somebody not to act on it and to be able to function heterosexually, even though maybe not changing their (laughs) underlying sexual orientation, but modifying their behavior. Is that what they're saying they can do? There's some question there. We really need a jury to decide exactly what are they representing that they can do? And are they misrepresenting what they can do? So the court was not willing to grant summary judgment on uh, the idea that, that the consumer fraud statute is violated if Jonah is saying they can change people. Because the issue is Are they changing behavior or are they changing sexual orientation? We need to sort this out. So a jury is going to look at that. Uh, The last uh, was summary judgment uh, on the issue whether Jonah commits uh, consumer fraud when they claim a particular success rate, when in fact there are no verifiable statistics uh, that would support such a claim. And the court said, well, yeah, if they are representing that there is a particular success rate in converting people, Uh, to heterosexuality but there's no statistical backup that's consumer fraud there is some question whether that's what they're asserting so once again a jury's going to have to decide Uh, the the partial summary judgments here don't end the case obviously there are questions left that have to be decided and uh, there are some First Amendment issues floating around in the case Uh, and the court said as to some of them it uh, is very dubious that they have a First Amendment right to practice conversion therapy as such, but some of the statements they're making may be protected by the First Amendment if what, what they're doing is representing the position of Judaism with respect to a particular issue.
0: And we've already got some good law on that point from the Third Circuit. That
1: yeah, uh, in the case uh, rejecting a First Amendment challenge to New Jersey's ban on licensed health care professionals performing conversion therapy on minors. Uh, And we should note that a few similar uh, bills have been introduced in some other states. The District of Columbia has passed something, California law. Uh, So there is a movement spreading. But there is a counter-movement spreading. In Oklahoma, a uh, state representative has introduced a bill which has uh, achieved some initial success, hasn't been enacted yet, which would protect practitioners of conversion therapy from any regulation by the state and from any charges that they're violating state law. Uh, so you know, with every advance, there are, are attempted backlashes. We'll have to see how that one will turn out.
0: All right, we'll take our last short break. When we return for our of note segment, we'll close out with another update about a situation we previously discussed only last month. Now, the Sixth Circuit has spoken on the civil claims against former Michigan Assistant Attorney General Andrew Shervell. All right, we are back to d- discuss uh, the Andrew Chervell case in our Of note segment for this edition. The bad news continues to pile up for former Michigan Assistant Attorney General Andrew Chervell in 2015. Last month, the Court of Appeals of Michigan dealt him his first defeat of the year by overturning his reinstated unemployment benefits and affirming his termination. Now, a three-judge panel of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit has separately affirmed $3.5 million in damages that a federal jury awarded to the victim, Chris Armstrong, in 2012 after a trial on his civil claims of defamation, false light invasion of privacy, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and stalking. Uh, Listeners to last month's podcast will remember many of the facts underlying this case in the Uh, Early 2010, Chervel became aware that the new student body president at the University of Michigan, Chris Armstrong, was openly gay. Chervel reacted to this development by launching an obsessive online campaign to destroy Armstrong's reputation, first on Facebook and then via a blog entitled The Chris Armstrong Watch. On the blog, he called Armstrong a radical homosexual ad, ad, <clears throat> activist, compared him to a Nazi, and even went so far as to place a picture of Armstrong's face alongside a swastika. Uh, he also warned that pro life, pro family Christians like himself would be violently persecuted by Armstrong. He also pushed stories about Armstrong supposedly facilitating underage binge drinking and gay orgies. When his outrageous accusations caught the public's attention, he appeared on local and then national television. Finally, Chevell's conduct expanded beyond online harassment as he repeatedly tracked Armstrong down in Ann Arbor at his home, at school events, and even off campus to confront and protest him. Uh, Chavelle eventually took the blog down at the end of September 2010 and lost his job uh, in November of that year. Following this whole ordeal, Armstrong filed a civil lawsuit against Chavelle in April 2011, Chervel removed the case to federal court and a jury trial commenced in August 2012. The jury eventually awarded Armstrong $4.5 million plus interest in damages. Uh, Now, with the case involving a series of torts with very complicated elements and several different kinds of damages, Chervel had plenty of things to find to appeal. But the Court of Appeals affirmed all but one of the legal conclusions reached below. Uh, The most interesting objection Chevelle raised centered on the defamation claim and his argument that his statements were not subject to interpretation as actual facts. Uh, The court easily rejected his view, finding that the vast majority of Chevelle's statements were capable of defamatory meaning because they can reasonably be interpreted as conveying actual facts. Uh, Remember, the context of his statements were made on a blog claiming to be a watch site, uh, and... It only strengthened the case that a reasonable person could interpret them as conveying actual facts. Uh, His declarations on television made it abundantly clear, uh, according to the court, that he wanted others to interpret the statements on his blog as actual facts. Um, Chervell also asked the court to classify Armstrong as a limited-purpose public figure, which would implicate the uh, the First Amendment and make it harder for Armstrong to win, but the court notes that there is no evidence that anyone besides Chervell saw Armstrong's character for truthfulness as a live issue or a subject of debate, and the record is completely devoid of any evidence that Armstrong's conduct affected anyone beyond the immediate participants, or that anyone besides those participants and Chevelle had any interest in the conduct. Nor did Armstrong's sexual orientation alone ipso facto create a public controversy over his sex life. So the court repeatedly asserts that a reasonable jury could conclude Chervel knew his stories were fabrications and his contradictory testimony about what he personally believed was not credible. Now, out of the myriad objections Chervel raised, the only one the court finds to have merit uh, is the imposition of an illegal double recovery for defamation and false light under Michigan law. Basically, uh, the jury, uh, on its sort of uh, verdict form, Use the same uh, underlying facts to say that Chevelle was liable for both defamation and false light. Uh, so the court uh, took away the $1 million that they awarded Armstrong uh, for false light, and that brought the total down from $4.5 million to $3.5 million. Uh, while this was a great victory for Armstrong, it's unfortunate that he probably has no chance of ever seeing uh, anywhere near the amount uh, owed to him. Um, Given how hard Chavelle fought to get his unemployment benefits reinstated, it's unlikely that he has $3.5 million in assets uh, to pay Armstrong. Um, And also the opinion discusses a lot about how this whole strange episode um, has continued to hurt Armstrong even now, years later, um, as he's made several career choices based on it where he hasn't wanted new employers to... To look into this strange episode And find out about it um, So while it is a, a legal win It's still um, The whole episode is still unfortunate And, and troubling to, to recount if you had Anything you wanted to say about it Art? Uh,
1: just that I hope this is the end of it <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Chevelle uh, Who continues to make First Amendment arguments Files a cert petition But I don't think it's going anywhere
0: Yeah All right, that's all the time we have for today. There's another uh, snowstorm in New York. If you can hear the plows in the background, we apologize. (laughs) If you are in the New York area on March 19th, uh, I invite you to join Art and I at the Bar Association's annual dinner. We will be honoring Alfonso David from Governor Cuomo's administration, Carmelin P. Malalis, the new chair and commissioner of the New York City Commission on Human Rights, and HBO, and we will also be joined by the plaintiffs in the Michigan marriage case currently at the Supreme Court. With that note, thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBARNY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in April.